Hello, once again, welcome to the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Greyhawk. And I'm your co-host, Jack Snefflin. Thank you for joining us for match four of our sports bracket. This week, we will be discussing 1996's Space Jam, along with 1996's Kingpin. So, this is 90s week again? I hate 90s week. <laughs> I always hate 90s week. This is drastically different than most of the other films that we've watched so far. These two films are very outside the normal sphere of sports movies. I mean, The Kingpin kind of comes from this tradition of the irreverent sports comedy. Yeah. That is one part inspiring underdog story, one part kind of poking fun at the sport it is portraying. Space Jam is just a very, very odd film. It sure happens. <laughs> so Space Jam is well-known and well-loved by the popular consciousness. Maybe even not necessarily well-loved specifically, but... Well-remembered, at least. Well-remembered. People still talk about it. It is still a meme thing. Space Jam is really weird, has some really weird stuff. I'm kind of sad I knew it was happening going in because the opening is a sort of pleasant father and his son talking about basketball while they're shooting hoops kind of thing. And then the credits roll and it goes, Michael Jordan, Bugs Bunny. <laughs> if you didn't know going in what this movie was about, you would be so confused. So what is this movie about? So, Space Jam. In 1994, Michael Jordan has retired from the NBA to follow in his father's footsteps and pursue a career in baseball. His talent doesn't transfer, unfortunately, and he's criticized and patronized by fans and peers. Meanwhile, alien amusement park owner Mr. Swaghammer is looking for something to boost business and sends his minions to capture the Looney Tunes so he can use their antics to do so. The Tunes outsmart the aliens and convince them they must give them a chance to defend themselves. The Toons choose a basketball game to capitalize on the alien's short stature. However, the aliens don't play fair and steal the talent from five NBA players to ensure victory. When the Toons discover this, they realize they need a ringer and abduct Jordan to help them win. Initially only willing to train them, Jordan agrees to compete after the Monstars antagonize him. The Toons train as hard as they can, but the Monstars dominate the first half, killing the Toon squad's morale. Bugs comes up with a scheme and convinces the team to take a steroid placebo, reinvigorating them to give it their all. The Toon squad manages to close the point gap, and then the Monstars begin injuring as many players as possible. The Toons are down to four players and are nearly disqualified when Jordan's golf partner, Bill Murray, arrives to fill out the team. With 10 seconds on the clock, the Toon squad steals the ball and Jordan uses cartoon physics to stretch his arm to score the winning dunk. The Toons are saved, the Monstars rebel against Mr. Swackhammer, and the stolen talent is returned. Jordan then returns home and rejoins the NBA. I'm not sure why I'm like going so hard for the Monstars honor, but you say that they don't play fair. I don't think anywhere in the rules it said that you couldn't steal the talent from major NBA players. Also, the game was specifically chosen because it wouldn't be a fair game, so I think leveling the playing field is actually kind of the fair thing to do here. They were initially just coming to enslave them to work in an amusement park. I'm not saying they're good people, <laughs> but I'm saying in this one matter, they were not entirely underhanded. Although they were literally in a trench coat, hiding their identity. There's literally a joke about it that uh, definitely flew over my head as a child. Oh wow, sure it does. Thought you are gonna get better seats this year. This is as good as I could get. This guy next to me is doing something very weird in his raincoat. There's a number of instances of that in the film. Looney has a long history being the slightly edgier of the cartoon universes. Let's talk about the animation. The animation is a simple thing that we're, we're comfortable with. That we can, it's a world building. These are, this is what we were built for. We started as a podcast talking about Disney, which has animation and world building as its core unifying things. And thank God we're back in our comfort zone. The 90s. 
they decided to go rather than just like sort of the flat Looney Tunes style. Everything is shaded and has these shadows all over it. And I'm not a huge fan. I'm not going to necessarily say it looks bad. It looks a little messy at times. It feels like they went that route specifically as a compromise to make it so that Michael Jordan and some of the other human actors wouldn't stand out so much against all of the animated characters and the animated backgrounds. Part of the problem is the shading isn't quite consistent with the light. It doesn't quite make sense, and your brain can tell the shadows are wrong. Well, they're not quite stylized enough to seem, like, fun wrong. Nor are they so unnoticeable that when there are mistakes, it doesn't really matter. It must be a lot of the animation from Enchanted, the incredibly good movie that no one ever remembers. Take these flowers to Nancy, please. What are you, crazy? They're birds. They don't know where she lives. Well, I mean, to be fair, there's Ella Enchanted, which is a much better movie. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> That's, that sure is an opinion. It tells me a lot about your reading habits. Namely, you haven't read Ella Enchanted the book. No, I've okay, only yeah. seen the film. Yeah, that's true. Sir Edgar has done a fantastic job. He has driven the ogres out, and he has put giants and elves to work as laborers and entertainers. Therefore... If it weren't for him, we wouldn't have today's thriving free enterprise system. Oh, it's only free because we've enslaved the poor creatures and they're forced to work for nothing. Oh. We could probably just cut that bit if that's <laughs> too controversial. No, no, it's fine. I, I like to create a controversy. It'll drive up our listenership as they argue about things, I guess. Speaking of arguing, there's this bit that isn't related to arguing at all, but it's not a good segue, whatever. <laughs> now, the animation isn't good, so it's relevant now. Where one of the monsters balls Michael Jordan up and uses him as a basketball and it's horrifying in that it looks wrong. Admittedly, I don't know what that would look like if a human man was balled up and turned into a basketball, but it wouldn't look like that. They probably should have hired a contortionist for reference. Their incorporation of the 3D animation in a couple points of the film, it always stands out like a sore thumb. Part of that is it's 1996, and as far as I'm aware, Warner Brothers was very much not equipped to handle that sort of thing. And honestly, it looks like they outsourced it not to a VFX studio, but a video game company. Yeah, it's weird. This looks worse than the tunes from Who Framed Roger Rabbit a decade before did. It wouldn't bother me as much if Wayne Knight wasn't in this movie. Wayne Knight, you probably know best as Nedry from Jurassic Park. You shouldn't use my name. Dodson! Dodson! We've got Dodson here! See, nobody cares. Which is sort of the gold standard for animation in the 90s. Like, those dinosaurs still mostly hold up. I can't help thinking, wow, you were in a better animated film three years ago. Why are you slumming, Wayne Knight? Why is this movie slumming by having you in it? Mr. Jordan, I'm, I'm the Baron's new publicist. <laughs> I'm here to make your life easier. You want me to drive you somewhere, I will drive you anywhere. You want me to pick up your laundry, to babysit your kids, I will do it. Yeah, he's also just a terrible character. And the film has the cardinal sin with terrible characters and pointing out how terrible they are and then not doing anything about it. Wayne doesn't really change at all throughout the film. He's always annoying. He's always pathetic. He's always a kiss ass. Mm -hmm. And there's a conversation between Bill Murray and Larry Bird pointing it out. You think Michael's all right? Boy, I hate to leave him like this. Oh, I'm sure he's fine. I think he just had to get away from that Stan character. God, he's pathetic, isn't he? Yeah. And it's like, oh, so you knew this character was bad, but still foisted him upon us. 
because you thought it would be funny. Yeah. But back to the animation. There is one part I really love where Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck are sneaking into Michael Jordan's house to grab his basketball gear. There were parts that I couldn't tell if they were really good animation or live action that was filmed in a way that made it look like it was really good animation. That part looks really great. That part holds up really well and it still feels like cartoon characters in a live action world but in a way that makes it feel like the cartoon characters are being affected by the real world physics. I will readily admit I do not understand how you read the interior of the house and all of that as animated, but it is a very well done scene and the animation does play well with the live action backgrounds. I think it wasn't supposed to I read it as being animated as it seemed to flow so seamlessly with the animation of the animated characters i didn't think they'd be able to achieve that with live action compositing stuff it seemed too seamless yeah although there is a very bad composite in that scene oh yeah of the bulldog breaking down that closet door so they have the bulldog composited on the door which is on top of daffy duck and then they have also animated the bulldog's eyes to make them more cartoon-esque and none of it works well together (laughs) no that scene does have a really great bit though where michael jordan's kids come in and see the looney tunes in trouble and help them out and i really like that scene how the kids just readily accept that the looney tunes are here on a mission and are real and their dad is needed and that this is all just a part of the world and they don't find that all that unusual there's a certain a certain period of being a kid where you kind of are in that mental emotional space and have that ability to imagine and i really like how well they captured that that's a really cool scene and i kind of wish we got a little more of that kind of on that note i am impressed by jordan's ability to do all the physical acting with the cartoon characters because there's not any reference for him to really interact with he's just kind of acting behind a green screen but he does a pretty decent job with it yeah michael jordan is a pretty solid actor I mean, it's no Schindler's List, but he's doing a fairly solid job for someone who probably isn't a professional actor. One thing I do want to talk about, so this movie has a excellent soundtrack, and I'm not the only one who thinks that. It went six times platinum. Wait, what? Yeah, six times platinum. 60 million copies were sold. Like, ironically? Or (laughs) were just super into the Space Jam soundtrack? I mean, as someone who was around in 1906 and part of that zeitgeist, I'm pretty sure people were just into that soundtrack. I mean, it's real good. It's a good soundtrack, yeah. But unfortunately, one of the premier tracks on the soundtrack, literally the first song we hear in the film is uh, R. Kelly's I Believe I Can Fly. And unfortunately... R. Kelly. Yeah. Yeah. Just the film's association with him has not done it any favors. While we're here, I do want to touch on kind of another smaller problematic bit of the film, Lola Bunny. Like, I'm fine with Lola being introduced as a new character. It adds a female character to the very, very male cast that, you know, was created back in the 20s and 30s. My main problem is that the text of the film is telling you, do not objectify Lola Bunny. She specifically comes out and says it, like, with, Don't ever call me doll. And the way she is interacting with, bugs as he's lovesick but all of the subtextual stuff the musical cues the way she's drawn the way she walks is telling you yes you are attracted to this cartoon rabbit it undermines what could have been a really cool character i'm super into the idea of while token girl being the only competent one is a well-worn trope that isn't always great i think it might have been really fun for this character to be like known for being really competent at basketball more than just being the sexy female bugs bunny 
I do also know that they have fixed some of that in her future appearances in Looney Tunes media, so that's good. As a bit of a praise thing, though, I really like that the umpire for the basketball games is Marvin the Martian. As a prominent alien Looney Tune, it was a good choice to have him be the neutral party. There's a lot of good cameos in this. Yeah, we see a lot of classic Looney Tunes who don't always show up in a lot of the more modern Looney Tunes media. There were some deep cuts of characters in the stands, which I really appreciated. Although I'm really upset that they didn't bother to recruit Gossamer for the team. He probably would have been great. You explained who Gossamer was and I was like, yeah, that makes sense. But as a casual Looney Tunes fan, not someone who knows much more than just like what I happen to catch on TV here and there, I didn't recognize him. So I understand why they might not have wanted to make him a central character. Oh, I, I completely understand why. This is me being upset. I understand why. It was probably a good decision. This is you building your ideal Looney Tunes basketball team, not uh, here's who are the most popular Looney Tunes. Exactly. But like, now that we're talking about the popularity of the Looney Tunes, it is really weird how commercialized and of its time this film is. There's a bit where Stan comes in and just references all the things that Michael Jordan has ever been the endorsement deal person for. Come on, Michael, it's game time. Get your Hanes on, lace up your Nikes, grab your Wheaties and your Gatorade, we'll pick up a Big Mac on the way to the ballpark. There's a point where Daffy Duck specifically calls out that he is owned by Warner Brothers. We're the lead of the Illuminations. And as such are the exclusive property and trademark of Warner Brothers, Inc. The Looney Tunes characters are all in a union? We've got an emergency cartoon character, a union man to go to. There's also some shade that gets thrown at Disney. Listen, how's this for a new team name? The Ducks! Please. What kind of Mickey Mouse organization would name their team The Ducks? So sue me. It's just a suggestion. I like to live dangerously in this movie. Honestly, this movie's weirdly subversive. At the end, Michael Jordan unionizes the aliens against Mr. Swackhammer. Why you take it from this guy? Because he's bigger. He's bigger. Than we used to be. There is this weird through line through the film of unionization and collective action. And also a message about the commodification of minority bodies by outsiders. Yeah, it's weird. I was not expecting that level of complexity from Space Jam. The first time it showed up, I was like, oh, this is probably just, we're reading too much into it, but I think the film was trying to comment on it. That theme kept showing back up, like, two or three more times. Like, oh, okay. We have Swackhammer's minions trying to effectively enslave the Looney Tunes so that they will have to constantly perform at Swackhammer's amusement park. Especially considering the associations of Looney Tunes to, like, vaudeville acts and associations of vaudeville acts to minstrelism. They also have Looney Tunes functionally kidnapping Michael Jordan to use his labor to their advantage. And you have the Monstars stealing the talent of five NBA stars, four of whom are men of color. It's not even just all the associations with the Toon stuff, it's also the struggles that Michael Jordan is going through while he's in baseball. Like He's being criticized for dropping out of the NBA and doing what he wants to do and play baseball. And even when he's there, it's not on a level playing field. He's being patronized. One of the early scenes of the film has the catcher for the opposing team feeding him what the pitches are going to be. Curveball, don't swing. And then when he strikes out, 
all his teams in the dugout are really quick to like, it was a good out. You looked really good doing good it. Good cut, Michael. Good cut. That was a strikeout, Mike. That was a good looking strikeout. Real good. I mean, you look good when you strike out, man. When I strike out, man, it looks nasty, man. The owner is specifically tells Stan to make sure my, uh, Michael is as happy as possible. It doesn't seem like Michael is going to be able to succeed on his own merits there. And he's specifically being used as a sort of side so attraction. It's like, oh, hey, look at this famous basketball star who's now playing minor league baseball. I'm not saying these all just really hold up under scrutiny or anything. But th there are definitely, like... There's definitely a reading that you could make there. Yeah, I think it's definitely worth analysis. Even if there are parts that fall apart, it is still fascinating, and I want to see someone do a dissertation on this. Mm -hmm. I'm also interested to see how much of that makes its way into Space Jam 2 in a couple of years, if that actually ends up happening. I'm really excited for Jordan Peele's Space Jam. <laughs> I know we keep saying hurl Jordan Peele at every given exploration of blackness and commodification, but Space Jam is functionally get out. I mean, Ryan Coogler is producing. Wait, really? Yes. Oh, awesome. Yeah, he is, okay. he is producing Space Jam too. Also good. <laughs> Space Jam, fascinating film, deserves more exploration. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about a film that doesn't. <laughs> yeah, uh, let's go ahead and switch over to Kingpin. Why don't you summarize that plot? Because it's not good. <laughs> Trigger warning throughout for intimate partner abuse. It's pretty gross. Thankfully, it's never depicted on screen, but it is definitely heard and talked about. And talked about in a shitty way, so if that also is triggering, that's there too. So, Roy Watson is hunted towards a promising career as a professional bowler, only to fall under the Stormcrow wing of Ernie McCracken, a bowling-themed grifter. When the con goes sideways, Ernie escapes, leaving Roy's hand to be mangled. Years later, Roy is a bum with no prospects until he meets bowling prodigy Ishmael Borg. Initially reluctant to be Roy's mentee to go to Reno for a million-dollar tournament, Ishmael eventually agrees when it turns out his Amish family is deeply in debt. The two road trip to Reno, training and conning along the way. This goes sideways when they fall afoul of bowling-themed rich weirdo Stanley, only escaping with the help of his now ex-girlfriend Claudia, using them as a method to escape his abuse. Use escape there twice, don't care, whatever, we're moving on. The three are a powerhouse. They arrive in Reno and run into Ernie McCracken, who's now a bowling superstar, who belittles them. Ishmael throws a punch and breaks his hand, and Stanley has tracked down Claudia, leading to her leaving with him and with the money. Out of options, Roy takes up the ball again. The crowd loves him, he's an underdog, and they give him the nickname Rubberman for his prosthetic hand. When Ishmael's brother arrives to bring him home, Roy is left alone and his confidence is broken. McCracken wins the final match and all the money from the tournament. Back home, Claudia shows up to tell Roy that she didn't abandon them. She was trying to not get killed by her terrible ex, and she's better than all of you, but... For whatever reason, she decided to date Roy. Despite losing the tournament, his nickname of Rubberman has earned him an endorsement deal from Trojan, and he gives all the money to Ishmael to save the farm. The plot here is actually pretty solid. There are a variety of movies that have basically this structure that do a better job of it. The problem here that I can't really get into the, with a summary is that a lot of the jokes are really terrible and range from being not good to obvious to like just actually horrible. If the film has an opportunity for vulgar humor, it's going to take it every single time. It's directed by the Farley Brothers, who have done Dumb and Dumber, Just Before This, Me, Myself, and Irene, There's Something About Mary. So this type of humor is strictly within their wheelhouse. Yeah, they're never going to be like Oscar-winning directors. Well, one of them is. Wait, what? Peter of the Farley Brothers directed Green Book. God damn it. I've never had fried chicken in my life. Who you bullshit? 
Put the bullet fried chicken, the grits and the collard greens. Yeah, so that's unfortunate. Ugh. So there's all these jokes and the plot is fine. There's nothing wrong with the plot about this underdog who finally makes good on his talent 20 years later. But the movie has this fear of ever being earnest. Whenever it has some sort of emotional or heartfelt moment, it immediately comes in with a joke that kills the mood. Mm -hmm. What do you think about New Beginnings? What is that, the feminine hygiene spray? To the point where towards the end of the film, the plots are getting tied off and we're going to get that happy ending. We're both waiting for the other shoe to drop. Like, oh, how are they going to ruin this scene now? And the way they ruin that end scene is they keep referring to Claudia as being such a whore. And he told us how you got him to quit all that. How you got Roy to straighten his life out. And how you got Claudia to quit being so much of the whore that she is. And it, it really, really pisses me off. Not in a this is bad writing way, but this is treating a woman who was in an abusive relationship and was doing whatever she could to get out of it as voluntarily benefiting from that. And that's really, really gross. Yeah. There's also the fact that there's very little support for that insult tossed at her. She dresses provocatively on cons, but it's not like she's ever performing sex work. She doesn't even have a sex scene throughout the entire film. I think we get one kiss from her and Roy, and that's it. I think that's probably the biggest problem with the film is its sense of humor Mm -hmm. uh, and the way it treats Claudia. Yeah. Which is a pity because I love Claudia in this. She's a really fun character who's able to like throw punches with all the other grifters around her and I'm like yeah I respect that. There is also something that didn't really get touched on in your summary. The film starts off with Roy as a child and he and his dad are like having the very stereotypical 50s 60s wholesome father-son bonding stuff. That's a pretty good opening scene. Yeah there's this really great subversion of the film is leading you to believe that they're going to go play catch out in the yard with a baseball on their mitt and whatnot and no Roy's father owns a mechanic shop and outside there's this little pavement area that they've set aside as a uh, bowling lane for Roy to practice. The really healthier relationship that Roy has with his father is really interesting and then he goes off on this toy after winning a high school state championship for bowling. That's when he runs into Ernie and everything goes south. But you can see Murray trying to fill that fatherhood role while Roy is out on the road and experiencing you know, some of the hardships. Mm-hmm. And Ernie leading him astray specifically because of that. But when we catch up with Roy in the present day, he's become an even bigger con man than Ernie ever was. Mm-hmm. And I really wish instead of the way that Roy and Ishmael's relationship worked, it would have been Roy realizing that he shouldn't be emulating Ernie to help train and guide Ishmael. He should be emulating his own father and 
I think if that would have been the case, it would have lent more credence to him kind of dropping the booze, dropping all the other vices, and kind of getting himself all cleaned up that he does at the end of the film. We should probably paint a word picture for our listeners. Roy is played by Woody Harrelson, who you might know as uh, Carnage in the Venom movies. Who looks exactly the same as Woody Harrelson does now. Yeah, he hasn't aged in 20 years, but unfortunately that not aging was him being at 60 when he like was 30 and staying that age. Although he's not 60, he's 57. I know that because I had to look up the ages for all of these actors because Ishmael is played by Randy Quaid and both Roy and Claudia keep calling him the kid throughout the entire film. Randy Quaid is older than both of them. Like, by a lot. He's 11 years older than Woody Harrelson and 16 years older than Vanessa Angel who plays Claudia. You might know her from Raptor Island, or perhaps a sequel, Raptor Planet. No, she was not in 1994's Raptor Planet at the time she was filming Puppet Master vs. Demonic Toys. But in 1997 or 8, I believe, she was in Raptor Planet. She also played Lisa in the Weird Science television show, which is actually where I knew her from before this. We didn't necessarily know all this off the top of our heads. Where is Wiki walking during the movie? Because we couldn't be arsed to actually pay attention to some of it. But yeah, oh, and uh, then... Ernie McCracken is played by Bill Murray, playing the same character that Bill Murray always does, but actually identified as a creep. Yes. Uh, This film has a whole extended joke about the horror of women's bodies because Roy is disgusted by his landlady, and it's gross and I hate it. The landlady, the way they portray her, she has this stringy, greasy, dirty hair. She smokes all the time, so her teeth are this yellowish-brown, and the way they portray her is just awful. Like, this film wants you to know that it hates women. Space Jam has some problems with feminism. Kingpin doesn't even know what it is. To the point where there's a scene where Roy and Claudia are in a literal fist fight and they had this weird prosthetic boob thing to like move Claudia's breasts in a certain way during the fight and it's just so weird and awful and I hate it. Yeah. During that scene I was like, hey, this fight scene isn't bad. It's pretty well choreographed for a comedy movie. And then that shot happens and I was like, never mind. So many scenes work that way. This film definitely has a Mel Brooks style approach to comedy, which is just throw everything in and eventually the audience will find something to laugh at. But unfortunately it doesn't have the finesse of Mel Brooks or the wit or the depth. Everything is just the most obvious joke you could think of. And jokes that you've seen in other better things. Yeah. I will give credit where it's due. After Ernie McCracken wins the final and Roy is broken, there's a fairly long series of shots of just him being sad and lonely while everyone flocks to congratulate Ernie. Big Ern is above the law! It's a great feeling! You are so cool! Any pressure! Where those girls? Where those girls over here? And they don't really play with that scene. They don't make a joke out of it. They just let him be sad and broken. And I felt for him, even though he's a horrible garbage man. There's also this really interesting if a little gruesome cut when oh god that bit when roy is losing his hand to a uh, ball return machine and then everything kind of fades to black and then it fades back in to a wood chipper outside of roy's apartment in the modern day and that cut accentuates 
just how gruesome and terrible the pain must have been for Roy to go through. And I think that is like really solid filmmaking there. That's something I'd expect out of a horror movie. Yeah. I mean, I've seen much worse than things, and it doesn't bother me, but here it was weirdly like, wow, that was almost too much. I'm not sure what it was. Maybe it's because I wasn't expecting it. I I didn't go and think that was going to happen. Really quick, I do also want to hit on the whole Amish angle of the film. Yeah. It's the most stereotypical Amish jokes that you've seen in various other comedies or stand-up specials. It's just so boring, and it's also really unnecessary for the plot. Mm -hmm. I mean, I get that you want to have a reason why... Why Ishmael is reclusive, but there were other better ways of doing that that didn't have this. Like, there are a few good jokes that come out of it. Throughout the film, they kind of comment that We Amish, we demand more of ourselves. You people work eight hour days, we work 12. We do whatever you people do plus a half. That's how we survive. And it comes up later after the first con that Ishmael and Roy try to pull off. It's like, you bowled terribly in there. I thought you had like a 270 what average. What do you expect? I mean, you guys with your 10 frames. What do you mean, you guys with your 10 frames? Well, my grandpa always taught me to bowl 15 frames. It's like I told you before. We Amish, we do everything half again as hard as you do. And it's a really good joke, and that is a decent setup, but I hesitate to give this film credit for it, considering all of the other fumbles that it makes. I mean, a stop clock is right twice a day. Another more personal bone to pick. There's a lot of licensed music in the film. Blues Traveler uh, plays during the ending credits, like the actual band in Amish garb. They use Superman by Goldfinger twice in this film, and it upset me viscerally both times. (laughs) Like, no, Goldfinger is too good for this movie. Again, credit where it's due. There's some good grifting in this. I like a good grift. I like a good grift narrative. There's some fun cons. There's some clever inventive stuff. Even when the con makes Roy more of a shitty person, I can still respect the structure that went into it. We've talked about Bill Murray's character a little bit. He's solidly a creep. At one point, there's a commercial where he is promoting a charity that works with single mothers, but it is very obvious from the commercial that all of these single mothers are his children that he's had out of wedlock and it's just so gross and it is somewhat nice to see someone kind of calling out all of the Bill Murrayisms that he brings to all of his characters as kind of gross and creepy. On the other hand, he still wins in the end. He doesn't really get any comeuppance. Yeah, which is unfortunate. Although, to give you just a sense of how much of a schmuck this guy is, towards the beginning of the film, before Ray loses his hand, he's in a restaurant and orders a tanqueray and tab. That's a weird combination of reasonably good gin and really obscure bad soda. I think in a less greasy, icky movie, I would actually kind of enjoy this Bill Murray antagonist character. He's weird and wacky, and I kind of like the thoroughness of his weirdness. Yeah. Like, again, like you said, in a different movie, it probably would have been fine, especially if we had a foil for him, but we don't really have that in this film. Ishmael and Roy are kind of just as bad of people. They just don't have the funding and resources to do all of the awful things that Bill Murray does. I mean, towards the end, we kind of get that turnaround for both of them, but it doesn't necessarily feel earned. It seems to be a turnaround motivated by, well, this guy's a jerk, not this guy's a jerk and we don't want to be like him. It's just we want to win 
against this guy because he annoyed us. I remember that night too, and I don't remember anybody twisting your arm. Oh God, just a twist of your arm to Munson. One last complaint. During the final match between Ernie and Roy, up until the very last frame, we don't really have a good sense of the score. Yeah, there's no cutaways to show us if they're neck and neck, if one's pulling ahead. We just get to the end and we know that Roy is up by nine pins. He misses a spare and then Ernie is able to make a strike on the final frame and then another, which puts him ahead. I just wish that there was a little bit more importance put onto the progress to get to that final frame as opposed to kind of just like spilling it out. Oh, here's where the score stands when we get there. It could have been a moment of actual tension and not just antics, but it still doesn't know how to do that. Are we ready to hit extra innings? Yeah. Although, I mean, it's going to be kind of weird because there isn't much of one for Space Jam, but yeah, let's talk about what has a better training montage and a better training gimmick. Uh, let's see. Training montage. So there's not really a whole training montage for Space Jam. There's a bit of a scene where they're cleaning up the gym and then there is a bit of a montage of them getting dressed for the final game and everyone getting their game faces on. But it's not really a training montage. Kingpin also doesn't really have a like bowling training montage. It's mostly just Roy, Claudia, and Ishmael going various places and grifting people. Yeah, I was going to say the training montage is just crimes. <laughs> And I think in that case, I'm actually going to give it to Kingpin because I think that's one of the better parts of the film. Again, some kind of fun grifts. There is a training gimmick we get from Kingpin where Roy has Ishmael be blindfolded uh, and have him bowl, I guess, based on the heart of the ball or whatever. Like the reach out with your feelings, Luke, mm -hmm. which fair enough. I don't know if that makes sense. I don't know bowling well enough to know that's actually doable if that helps at all. But I respect the idea that there's some deeper inner spiritual nest to bowling. Sure. And then for Space Jam, probably the best training gimmick is the placebo steroids at halftime. Oh, I was going to say using alien magic to steal the <laughs> talents of major NBA players. See, I think one is curtailing training entirely. Yeah. <laughs> it's effective, <laughs> but uh, I think it's against the spirit of the discussion. <laughs> But I'd also say that the placebo steroids are during the game. You can't train during a game. I think it's very drastic, a shift in how the Toon Squad is playing between them. Like, the second half is where we get exactly what I want out of a Looney Tunes basketball game, mm. which is Harlem Glo Globetrotters antics, but dialed up to 12. Mm, sure, that makes sense. With, like, explosions and weird references to Pulp Fiction. <laughs> You know, for kids. <laughs> you know, for kids. I think either way, I like the Looney Tunes gimmick better. <laughs> <laughs> yes. No matter how we decide on that, I it just, it's so weird and out there. <laughs> mm. Even though they're technically tied for extra innings, it's pretty clear that Space Jam is a better movie. Yeah, Space Jam is definitely moving forward this week. Kingpin was a slog to get through. It disappoints me that it is so well-loved as this sports comedy and as this, you know, great movie for Woody Harrelson and Bill Murray. It definitely tells me that the voting panel was solely made up of white guys. Wow, boy, howdy were they. I am happy to never watch this film again. Yeah. So Space Jam will continue to come on and slam. And uh, Kingpin will be dethroned. Mm. What's up next week? Doc. 
Next week, we are moving over to the right side of the bracket, and we will be discussing The Karate Kid as well as Wimbledon. So we're going to have Ralph Macchio learning karate, and we're going to have the second movie with Kristen Dunst in it. And also uh, Paul Bettany. So thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us on this terrible journey through Kingpin with us. And if you want to make sure to listen to our next episode as soon as it goes live, you can make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Podbean, and Spotify. This has been the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.